Welcome to the Produce Industry Podcast, your weekly download on current events, trends, market reports, and community discussions. Join us each week from Tampa, Florida, as we cover all aspects of the produce supply chain industry. Ladies and gentlemen, here's your host, Patrick Kelly. Hey, produce people, welcome back to the Produce Industry Podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Kelly, along with my co-host for the series, John Papp of Jack Vandenberg Inc. Today is May 1st, 2023, and we are in episode four of our new series all about the global history of produce, including fun facts and stories, when it all started, how it became commercialized, and how, when, and why we do it. The origins of some food extend to the earliest human civilizations, Through the centuries, many of these foods shaped or altered the course of history. In the process, some of them took on a life of their own in religion, literature, the arts, and pop culture. This is the history of bananas. Hey, John. Hey, Patrick. Hey, listeners. We have a very good one for you today and cannot wait to get started. John, this is one we have been chatting about for a while, especially with the Equifruit team that we know there is so much banana history. There is definitely no shortage of that. And you know what, Patrick, with everyone in today's world wanting to know where their food comes from, we figured we would take the time to really tell you. So think about when you walk into the grocery store's produce department, you are walking into a time capsule of fruits and veggies that were developed some over 7 million years ago. So let's Get this episode started by letting people know how bananas begun. And everyone, as usual, if you're interested in our references, please see the episode description for more details. So, fun fact to start with, you know bananas are a berry, botanically speaking? I did know that, and I did know that because I was taught that over the last couple of years. If you were to ask me in 2020, I would have told you no. Well, there you go. So, there you go. Everyone, you're eating a berry when you're having a banana. But that's not where it only uh, ends there. So the banana plant is actually not a proper tree. So you think it's like a banana tree, but it's actually an herbaceous plant. So it doesn't actually have any true woody tissue. And modern bananas are actually sterile, as we know. They only contain residual seeds. And so the banana plants are propagated by cuttings. They're all essentially clones. So we've kind of seen that before when we've talked about in our previous episodes about grapes, uh, namely. Um, wild bananas were actually packed full of bullet-like seeds and contained actually very little edible fruit. But we're going to get a little bit into that a little bit later. So as we all know, bananas today are one of the most widely grown, traded, eaten of all crops. Actually, over 115 million tons are produced annually, exceeded only by three other foods, which is wheat, maize, and rice. And in 2021, bananas were the most consumed fruit in the U.S., with 63% of primary shoppers buying bananas. And so, as we all know, bananas generally throughout Europe and America are distinguished by the name banana, which we associate with eating raw, and plantains, which are cooked in other regions of the world, particularly in India, Southeast Asia, and islands of the Pacific. They don't have that uh, distinction. They just call them all plantains. Anyway, that's a little background of where we are today with bananas. So let's dive into the origins. So bananas are believed to have originated up to 10,000 years ago. And some scientists believe they actually were the world's first fruit. 
And the first bananas are thought to have grown in the region that includes Malaya Peninsula, the Indonesia, Philippines, and New Guinea. And scientists do know that the banana's predominant wild ancestor is a species named Musa acuminata, which occurs from India to Australia. You think I wasn't going to say anything about that? That sounds like Kuda Matata. I know. As I was saying, I was like, I'm about to dive into the Lion King here. These bananas, they, bananas they there. no worries, everyone, for the rest of your days, right? Eat more <laughs> bananas, please. It's junk <laughs> philosophy. Musaku <laughs> <laughs> Matata. Yeah, Mustafa. There you go. Musa Mustafa. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, so it, Musa is the species of, of, of banana, and it started from New Guinea. And cultivated bananas then started to spread westward into the island Southeast Asia, and then because due to proximity, and then found its way into India and Africa. So going into the first mention of banana, you can go back to 600 BC, and you find this in some Buddhist scriptures known as the Pali Canon. And uh, Indian tra traders were traveling through the Malaysian region and had tasted fruit and brought those fruits back with them to India. And it's actually the only fruit mentioned in the Pali Canon, which is a, uh, a central scripture to one of the schools of Buddhism. And actually, to this day, uh, the banana is pretty integral to India's culture. It's a, the go-to fruit for nearly every occasion and is deeply woven into the country's cultural fabric. And they've been valued medicinally for thousands of years and is actually considered sacred and every part of it is used. So a lot of deep history in India associated with the banana. You go into 327 BC, Alexander the Great is doing his invasions throughout the East, uh, markedly through India, where he discovers the banana, brings it back to Europe, introduces the Europeans to it. But the weather and the climate in Europe is not uh, good for the banana, so it doesn't actually grow there and remains an exotic item that's very rare to be found uh, in Europe. Move into uh, 63 BC, and there's actually just a little interesting fact here because you have an Antonius Musa, which was the personal physician to the Roman emperor, uh, Octavius Augustus, who some think... It, the name, the genus name for the banana Musa is actually honoring this individual who helped spread the cultivation or encourage the cultivation of the banana. But others also believe that this name was derived from the Arabic name for the plant, which was moose. Moving forward to 650 AD, now bananas as we know them today are starting to be developed in Africa. There are some crossbreeding of varieties happening of wild bananas within Africa, and they start to become seedless and more like the bananas we're eating today. And actually, historians believe that the Arabian slave traders uh, that were operating in this region is where the banana name came from. So the bananas that we see today are not at all like the bananas of that time. So they were much smaller and were about as long as his adult finger. And so the Arabic name, or for, for basically an adult finger or, or finger in general, was banan. So that's where banana comes from. That's yeah. interesting because if you look at some of the plantains, you know, that you see, or the smaller bananas, they're, they're still, this, I mean, they're like a gorilla's fingers, let's be real. Yeah, that's a big very, finger. They're, they're, I was going to say, that's a very <laughs> it's a chunky big finger. finger. I mean, we got, we got Andre the Giant's fingers over here, everyone. Um, but but it's so true because when you do see those in the store, it is a resemblance. So when you're in your grocery store, right, uh, those are those relics in time that we talk about, right, John? We've yep. got relics in time that are sitting right in front of us. And it just depends on how you feel and, and what you want to consume. Um, think about that banana, right? Or think of time, the next time you see a plantain, 
we're going back to 600 AD and before. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I mean it's, it's amazing. I mean, I think about it sometimes when, you know, you think about bananas, you think about a tropical paradise, you think, Oh, you can just go to a banana tree and pick it. And, you know, in all reality, it's, it's a lot different than that. Right. And I'm really interested to hear the rest of the history. And even for our listeners, I mean, wait till you hear more of this. And then we're not even yet to the point where we talk about the actual commercialization of it. So let's keep going, John. Yeah, we're, we're getting, we're steaming forward ahead here. So for the next, uh, Four or five hundred years, I would say the banana obviously continued to spread through the Mediterranean, the African subcontinent. Then you have the Portuguese enter the scene in 1482. They discovered bananas in West Africa as they're circling the continent to get to the uh, Indies for the spice trade. And they come across the bananas. They move those bananas uh, to the Canary Islands, which is coastal islands off of West Africa, and they establish those plantations. Then from 15 to 1800, you start to see the movement now of the banana suckers. So little extensions off the banana plant being circulated throughout uh, the global empires of Spain and Portugal, moving into the Americas and the Caribbean. And the banana was used actually as a precious intercropping plant. So the banana plants offered the perfect amount of shade to valuable commodities of that time, like cacao, coffee, pepper. So the banana was not just a valuable fruit for ingesting of itself, but its leaves had other uses too. So the fact that it had a non-labor intensive crop added to its popularity was also used to feed slaves who worked in plantations because of the high energy content and easy digestibility. So that's where the banana starts to play a role in the Caribbean area. Now, before we get more into the Americas, um, some other highlights during this period. So again, banana still an exotic, rare entity. You know, England starts to get first glimpses of the banana um, in London when a botanist, a botanist and merchant called Thomas Johnson displays a bunch in his shop in the city of London in, eight, uh, in 1633 which came from the recently colonized island of Bermuda. And then in 1830, you have a French planter called Jean Pouillet, who identified a specific variety of banana called the Gros Michel. Keep that name in mind, because we're going to come back to that one. Uh, he found that one growing on the Caribbean island of Martinique. And by the end of the 19th century, this banana actually becomes the most popular variety exported. So again, keep that one in mind. And that banana, I said it came from Martinique, but before that, it was actually moved over from Southeast Asia, which is where all the bananas really originated from, uh, by a French naturalist who actually brought it to Martinique. And then in 1860, North Americans are really starting to get more taste of this banana. They're starting to come in very small quantities uh, into uh, the United States after the Civil War. And then... You even have in 1872, Jules Verne, which you might recognize that name as the author of the Around the World in 80 Days. He actually even mentions the banana in chapter 12 of his novel, where he writes, quote, for the last time they rested under the shade of banana trees. Their fruit is as hearty as bread and as delicious as sweet cream. Travelers highly valued them. Wow, that's crazy. Now, listen, if you want another, you know, pop culture reference, when you, you think about Jules Verne, you can always go back to Back to the Future when Doc Emmett Brown met uh, Clara for the first time before she went over the, the ravine because she saved her. And of course, what was in her bag? The, oh, Jules, the Jules Verne book. <laughs> 
banana. Yeah, banana. There probably was a banana in there somewhere. Hey, if you of remember, course. also, also in Back to the Future, he used banana peels to fuel the DeLorean, the time That's machine, true. as well. So, you know, think about it, people. When you're watching even TV, because we talk about pop culture and this and how uh, things shaped the world, right? Even bananas, right? How the banana industry was actually born. And think about how bananas are so widespread today. Heck, we see them on slippers. We see them on Crocs. We see we have rules that you don't take bananas on boats, okay? I mean, yes. think about all of the crazy things that happen because of one little berry that just completely skyrocketed. When you think of monkeys, you think of bananas. Like, right? We, when you think of someone slipping, you think of bananas, right? I mean, think about cartoons. They would throw the banana peel out the window. Whoa! There went Wiley Coyote slipping on a banana peel. So, everyone, we're going to take a quick break, and then we are going to get into how the banana industry was born, how and where it is cultivated today, and some other fun facts. So, let's go ahead and take a quick break. JGLC, the place to be, a third-generation, family-owned and operated asset-based company. Throughout their 60 years in business, integrity, reliability, and loyalty to their customers has remained their top priority. JGLC guarantees 24-7 communication with your personal logistics coordinator. They offer competitive pricing without sacrificing services. They operate throughout the United States and Canada. JGLC's customers count on them for dependability and dedication carried out on every order, every time. 60 years of service for all your trucking needs. Visit them at JGLC.com for your custom quote. Discover orchard freshness on Amazon Fresh with Arctic Apple Slices. Arctic Apple stays orchard fresh longer than other prepackaged, pre-sliced apples. This means less waste and no more half-eaten apples. Plus, you'll love the undeniable freshly picked flavor. Arctic Apple Slices are available in convenient grab-and-go bags in both Arctic Golden or Arctic Granny varieties in select markets on Amazon Fresh. Packable, snackable, 100% irresistible. Are you ready to enhance your skills? Every day we are tasked to make fast, effective decisions to keep up with the fast-paced produce industry. At AgTools, we take the pressure off of gathering data to help make your day easier and more enjoyable. Connecting the supply chain with AgTools is unique, practical, and easy. AgTools can be used from multiple angles of the produce industry, from farmers all the way to logistics companies. We call that 360-degree decision-making day after day. Visit us at www.agtechtools.com to gain more reliable and relevant data to see more, achieve more. And now, back to our show. Hey, produce people. Welcome back to the Produce Industry Podcast. It's always great to hear from Dynamite sponsors, creating dynamite content for the produce and supply chain industry. Heck, sustainable packaging and keeping all that plastic out of our landfills. Our guest and host of the series, John Papp of Jack Vandenberg, also has a deep dedication for sustainability as well. So let's go ahead and get John back on and keep talking about bananas. All right, people, it's time to fasten the seatbelts because this is about to get pretty dark and uh, unpleasant, I would say. If you don't know the banana history already, that is. Listen, it's about to get a little. Listen, what you have to take into consideration, everyone, is that 
a lot is is in this banana industry. It's been corrupt. It's been sold. It's been vandalized. It's been harassed. Like John, I mean, right? Like I feel like if the if the you know in a boxing like uh, not even a tournament like in training, the banana is the boxing bag, right? Like <laughs> that, that. It's it's just that's what it's got. And, and not only that is we've talked about other tropicals on the show, right, John? We talked about yes. dragon fruit as well. It seems that the tropical category in general has had issues in the past. Everything from mangoes, dragon fruit, bananas. So I, I say we get into the banana history and it being born. And heck, you know, I don't mind starting this off, John, because I, I think that as we as we develop this and we start learning about it, look, we're going to go all the way back to 1870 AD. And, and we say all the way back, even though we just talked about the history and we left off at 1872, it's still a big factor if we're going all the way back. So let's jump in the DeLorean, all right? Let's type in 1870. And uh, let's look at the, the first company that was started in America dedicated to importing bananas. Now, this company was Lorenzo Dow Baker. We was the first import from the fields from Jamaica to Jersey City. See, I, I didn't think that we're going to come from Jamaica uh, when, when I was thinking yeah. about this. I did not. And so when I saw that, that was interesting. Of course, it would go to the East Coast because why? Because Paul Manfrey was out there two thousand years ago <laughs> selling bananas on the side of the street for the same price. He said it so many times. I'm just kidding. But Baker came upon the banana by chance when he was on his way back to the U.S. from Venezuela. Um, he was transporting mining equipment and had stopped in J Jamaica to pick up bamboo, uh, another exotic commodity. Uh, he added bananas to his cargo, uh, which he bought uh, that roughly, if we go back, you know, 10 cents with inflation, uh, you know, what sold at uh, $2 a bunch or what it would have sold at $2 a bunch. His trips to Jamaica became more frequent and started investing in more ships to carry bananas. I hope that's not how that whole Dole vessel thing started, where they have the whole thing of bananas and pineapple. It is right. It is. Oh, my gosh. Right. Uh, yeah, so then yeah. in uh, 1885, he joined forces with another businessman, Andrew Preston, to form the Boston Fruit Company. Wow. So now we've got all the way back dating from 1870 to 1885, starting the first company bringing in bananas from the Caribbean, giving people of North America a much fresher product. That's amazing. All right. Obviously from 1870, right? And then moving into 1876, at the World's Fair in Philadelphia, Alexander Graham Bell, which you got to know the name, everybody. If you're a history buff, you know the name, okay? He stole the show. His invention of the telephone brought visitors from around the world. A few hundred feet away from the telephone presentation and located in the horticulture hall was... Bananas. B-A-N-A-S. That's right. <laughs> bananas, everyone. So the tree was... Uh, for most of the people, the first time they'd ever seen a banana in the North, in North America, right? Uh, just like no difference in us seeing the dragon fruit for the first time, John. It's like, you're like, whoa, what is this? This exotic fruit. It's a tree produced, right? Ten cents a piece, wrapped in foil. I mean, what the heck were we eating? You know why it was wrapped in foil? You what? No, I didn't. As, as, as I learned about that, it was interesting to know. And but remember, I mean, oranges were wrapped in tissue paper back in the days as well, right? I think that wrapping them made it, you know, it was a surprise when you open it up. Ooh, what is that? this, right? Well, actually, it was wrapped in foil to mask the shape because it's considered suggestive. Remember, this is a Victorian period. You didn't want women or men, for that matter, carrying around something that was suggestively shaped. 
So that's why they wrapped it in foil. I'm, I'm completely serious. That is amazing. And it was marketed as a curiosity of the Indies. That's so if you had a shape like that, just out there, you know, and you I mean, put it in your mouth, you know, there's... There's certain ways to eat bananas too, okay? But listen, Americans fell in love with it. Am I right? They, they fell in love with this exotic fruit, uh, but it was still considered very taboo by many. Why? Because you just said it. Exactly. Because of the shape. Listen, is that a banana in your pocket? No, no. Stop with the jokes. You see what I'm saying? But that's yeah. why it was so taboo, right? So you had to begin to tackle that taboo. And that's what the Boston Fruit Company was doing as the banana industry was booming. A lot of attention was getting really on how properly to disguise this item uh, because of its shape, right? And again, as we keep moving forward, I'm going to let you jump into it because uh, as we move into 1875, there were so many things happening. Heck, there were postcards that the Victorian ladies sitting under trees and picnics holding bananas and putting bananas in their mouth. This was a way to break that taboo that a lady could even hold or touch a banana. This banana was a delicate treat, right? And let's talk moving into 1875 AD, John. Yeah, so here you start to have something called the Tropical Trading and Transport Company emerge. And this had been set up a few years after Baker started his uh, adventures in the banana importing business. And in due time, you actually will have these two companies begin fighting for control of the banana market. But it was the competition that really led this trading company to build plantations in Costa Rica. So this company was actually established by an individual called Minor Cooper Keith. He was a young businessman from New York who had begun experimenting with the planting of bananas as early as 1873 to feed his railroad laborers. So he's not like he was in the fruit business. He just saw this as an opportunity to give cheap food to the laborers building this railroad. He grown them from roots he had obtained from the French. And to market the bananas, Keith began running uh, began running a steamboat line from Limon to New Orleans in the United States. And that ended up being lucrative, and he started growing that export business. But let's let's find out a little bit more why Minor Keith was in Costa Rica building these railroads, because there's a line to draw there. So during this period of time, Costa Rica's economy was based primarily on the export of coffee, which was grown in the country's central valley. So you have the Central Valley that's growing these coffee beans, and they have to be moved to the coast to transport for export. But Costa Rica was a very undeveloped country, and it was very difficult to move that product. So it was basically moving through ox cart, which is, as you can imagine, not very, very uh, easy work. So since the main market for Costa Rican coffee was in Europe and no canal connecting the Pacific and Atlantic existed, they needed to create a reliable transportation route to the Caribbean. And that was basically building a railroad. And so uh, Minor Cooper Keith was contracted by Costa Rica to build this uh, railroad. It was very, very challenging due to an inadequate financing compounded by rugged terrain, thick jungle, torrential rains. You can just imagine this is a rainforest that has never been touched. And the prevalence of diseases like malaria, yellow fever, dysentery, thousands and thousands of people died building this railroad. Uh, as much as 4,000, including even Keith's three brothers died during the uh, construction of the first 25 miles of track, mostly from malaria. So this is no joke, but Keith kept pushing through. For, for as crazy as you might think and some bad rap he did get, I mean, you've got to give credit to the guy. He just kept pushing. This was a 
a project he was committed to finishing. Now, by 1882, the Costa Rican government had defaulted on its payments to Keith, and he could no longer meet its obligations to the London banks from which it had borrowed to pay for the railroad. So a deal was worked out, actually, between the Costa Rican government and Keith. Keith got 800,000 acres of tax-free land along the railroad and a 99-year lease on the operation of the train route in return to complete the railroad. Keith took this deal, and the railroad was completed in 1890, but the flow of passengers and the cargo actually proved to be insufficient to finance Keith's debt, because remember, he had to now take out loans to finance it, because there were still things he had to pay to get the job done. So as a result, Keith was actually then forced to have his tropical trading and transport company, if you recall, that was getting dabbling in the banana business in the late 70s, decided to combine and merge with the Boston Fruit Company to drumroll become the united fruit company in 1899 that's crazy so now the united fruit company start now they've got a grower right and someone with land and then now they got the receiver in in the states it's the perfect setup you are completely vertically integrated and you control every and own every step of thing so you have free lands you have the railroad which you own you have the transport, which Boston Fruit has developed. They have all their own ships. You control and have fixed costs along the whole. It's just set up. It's primed to happen at this stage. The wow. Fruit. So what did that? So when thinking about this, if you're if you're listening out there and you're like, wait a minute, what? Right? I mean, this is a way of vertical integration. How farms used to be, right? Uh, compared to now, a lot of people own little small segments of farms, and it's all kind of like co-op sometimes into one. Uh, one brand or grower or, you know, system, right? Um, what happened next is my, is my question. Well, in 1890, so, or sorry, 1900 now, so about a year or two into this merger now, so United Fruit Company now controls 80% of the American market. So just think about that. 80% of the banana market is controlled by this one company. Bananas were now, at this point in time, and still cheaper in America than fruit grown locally in North America, like apples and oranges at this time. And again, the main objective for that was to ensure demands. They were trying to create a demand that wasn't actually there yet. Okay, They wanted to make money primarily to finance the debt of Keith, which you know, obviously by also merging helped to facilitate that. So this was all about making money. And the way you do that with an exotic piece of fruit that nobody seems to know or want yet is you make it as cheap as possible. And they could do that because again, they managed to monopolize every step of the process. They owned every stop. They owned the land, the transportation costs, which were all fixed. Right. Now, where was the wild card? The wild card? Labor. Labor uh -oh. was where they could really increase the margins. That's they could push down. And that's where we start to enter some dark <laughs> moments. So basically the demands has starts to increase in the first half, so 1900 and 1920. And so the United Fruit Company begins to acquire huge amounts of lands in Central and South America using the very right. same strategy they used in Costa Rica. You have a lot of these Central American countries that are looking to develop. They want railroads. Railroads was a sign of development. So these Central American countries are contracting with the United Fruit Company saying, okay, we'll give you free lands to you know, plant bananas and you build us railroads. And that's exactly what they did. So they started building all these railroads. What a trade-off. Exactly. And and you have this happen in Guatemala, Honduras. Right. And so basically, 
at this point in time, you have United Fruit Company that owns half of the farmable lands in Guatemala, owns all the railways in Guatemala and radio stations and infrastructure. And in 1901, the United Fruit Company was hired by Guatemala to manage the country's postal service. What? <laughs> what? Hey, listen, uh, if you're a banana uh, shipper and you're wondering about you know what's going on, you haven't listened or looked up the history, it's all coming together for me right now. I'm putting all, all the all the dotted lines are starting to become connected, right? Oh, but it goes further now. Oh, I it bet goes it further. Does. <laughs> By the 1920s, so the United Fruit Company had an empire stretching. You got to think about this as an empire. It's almost like the Amazon of today, right? This empire stretched across Central America into the northern parts of South America. And because of this octopus-like spread, the company actually earned the name El Pulpo in Spanish for the octopus, okay? And the company even had its own, and this is where you were kind of alluding to when we were talking about the Boston Fruit Company, Patrick. At this point now, they own 100 ships of their own known as the great white fleets and it became the world's largest private navy think about that a fruit company had a navy in fact in 1961 the united uh fruit company supplied the u.s government with ships for the failed bay of pigs invasion i was gonna say that that is crazy because as as you keep moving forward it's like you think about like the logistics companies of today and what they control and in, like I said, the 1900s, they controlled what? Probably, I would say 80 to 100% of the market then, back yeah. then, right? Yeah. So that that's that's insane. And to own the railroad, now let's think about it. The railroads, the land, the ships, and the distribution. Obviously, yes, uh, that's called entrepreneurship, but also I think could be called monopoly as well, right? Yeah. Owning every aspect, having their own fleets, Right. And I think that that's that's one of the things that probably starts to take this into a different spiral. Am I right? It's, yes. It's interesting. I mean, look, we, we left off in 1920. Right. So uh, l- let's look at 1920 A.D. Uh, by the 1920s, the United Fruit Company right expanded their empire. Right. They've got the hundred ships. They've got the Great White Fleet. They become like like you said the the largest navy like in my head it's just like it's all like flaring off right now right but now so the question is is because i go back to bananas and paying you know farmers fairly you know Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. how did this work out so now they had hundreds of employees thousands of workers in other countries you talked about labor i mean now you're spanning from international waters to international countries you know country to country right so obviously, and you know this, if bananas are cheap, they're still cheap to this day. But if you bring in any product and put it below the market, the demand's probably going to grow pretty quickly, right, John? Absolutely. That was the strategy. Wow. So strategy. as we move in more into the 1900s, right? People, people were going crazy for these. Okay. As the demand grew, uh, working 14-hour days. Think about the rush. People had to work sometimes, uh, I would say, double shifts. Work was grueling. People would carry 100 pounds or more of bananas on their backs as they're carrying these. I mean, I've been to Costa Rica, and I've seen the donkeys carrying all this, and I've seen people with packs of bananas. No difference than seeing oranges, right, with mm-hmm. packs that they're yep. throwing in as they're picking. They're, you know, And then think about it. I talk about this in our orange uh, history lesson. The spiders that are in those trees. Well, guess what? The same thing for these people and their workers, right? 
There were snakes living on these banana plantations. There was uh, amaryllis. They were a very poisonous snake that hides under the foliage. I don't like snakes that hide. I think a lot of them hide, John, and it's not fair. But again, <laughs> no. it, there's so much going on with being a picker and being in these fields. And then on top of that, United Fruit paid their workers in vouchers, right? Which could only be used in designated United Fruit commissaries. But a lot of companies did that back in the days. I remember even here in like the sardine companies, the canning companies, right? You would get paid, not not better, um, but sometimes the way you're paid, if it went to the commissary, your pay would be compensated differently. The same thing with the the uh, the coal mine workers. They were given vouchers to go shop in the stores because normally they all lived within that same town. Exactly. They lived in the farm. Right? They you lived, lived on the farm. You lived at the farm. You yeah. didn't need to go. And this was control. It allowed the company to control the labor. It's all about control of resources. Well, and this, labor was seen as a resource. It was basically an, an era of sanctioned slavery. Let's, I was just going to say, well, that kind of brings you to almost, it's, it's almost slavery. And let's go to 1928 AD in December of 1928, a group of United fruit workers were on strike to protest subpar working conditions. Holy crap. We're still today talking about unfair work conditions for the banana industry. So after several weeks, United Fruit representatives of the U.S. Uh, officials threatened to invade Colombia with the Marine Corps if the government didn't protect uh, the business interests of United Fruit. The Colombian government sent over military. I mean, think about what was happening. We're going to war almost over bananas. Let's say it again. It's bananas, everybody. So a lot of these things were happening. Um you will go down there. The Colombian government sent uh, a military from Bogota. They opened fire on a group of plantation workers and their families in Sunday morning mass, becoming the banana massacre. So you've heard of the bloody massacre in Boston. We had the banana massacre. I mean, that that's insane. I mean, it truly is insane. And think about it. What do you think about when you hear the term banana republic? I think about shoot, shirts, right? Yeah, I think of them at the store, which is a terrible, terrible market marketing play. If you really think about who right? thought well, in their mind to name their store chain Banana Republic. Banana Republic sounds cool if you don't know anything about the history, but that right. was coined during this era. The Banana Republic would describe politically unstable countries economically dependent on bananas as a sole export and product, and has been diversified into other limited resource products. That is the Banana Republic, truly stated. Like, wow. Uh, it's crazy. Now, John, I'm going to let you jump through into 1944 as who was born. Well, the little one. You the know what the, the little, little one is, right? The also, little one. Should, listen, I, I said we shouldn't do it. We, we don't have to play the song, but we can at least sing the song, can't we? I think we can. All right. I'll let you start it. I say the last song. <laughs> Come on. Who's the I'm company? Chiquita Banana, and I'm here to say. I don't know the rest of the words. <laughs> there we go. So Chiquita brand was born, John. What do you say about that? Yeah. I mean, look, say what you will, again, of course, uh, of the terrible uh, practices that the United Fruit Company deployed, but their marketing team was pretty ingenious. I mean, in 1947, uh, 1944, sorry, they, they launched Chiquita brand. And in 1947, the company solved that problem of distinguishing their bananas from their competitors with this colorful Chiquita sticker. I mean, they became really the uh, the original 
marketers of produce. You know, United made advertising history by creating a branded premium product out of what was essentially a common commodity. So you have Chiquita, the brands born uh, in the 40s. Moving into 1950s, United Fruit Company is still very much in power, using its influence with the United States government to put pressure on South American countries that did not cooperate. Now, what they were leveraging at this time, so think about 1950s, it's post-World War, communism. Communism is a big concern for the U.S. government, for the U.S. population. There's a lot of fear surrounding communism. And so United Fruit Company leverages that. They, they basically plant the seeds in the United States government minds that there's a lot of communist uh, chatter and risk in the Central American region, and uh, they need the support of the U.S. to help basically keep their business operations intact and the people of those nations in check and not go communist. So the United Fruit Company would get involved in the local and national elections of these countries. And it came to a head, actually, in 1954 with Guatemala, when the CIA conducted a covert operation to remove the democratically elected left-wing government of President Jacobo Arbenz in the name of communism. So there you go. Again, communism was used as the, the reason for this. And the platform of, of the Arbenz election was to begin to charge the banana exporter, United Fruit Company, which owned 50% of the Guatemalan farmland tax-free to pay an equal amount of taxes. That's what they wanted. That's what he ran on, and the people democratically elected him. But United Fruit, leveraging with the power that they had, said to the U.S., look, these guys, this this Arbenz, he's no good. He's communist. He wants people to you know, uh, have social rights and uh, freedom and tax. Yeah. They spun it in such a way to make it sound like communism. So the coup comes in, and this coup actually ushers in decades of military rule in Guatemala, during which the government locked in a struggle with guerrilla movement that inevitably gave rose in response and engaged in what many scholars have actually described as genocide against the Maya population of that region. So you can still see today, you know, the ramifications of this one act tied again down to the banana business of what that impact had on a national uh, state in Central America, and the part of the reason for this cutthroat banana business is because the it's because of the model. It's 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 one that's based on one strain of banana is processed. Okay, so it's a monoculture. It's just one type of banana, and the only this banana is used in the supply chain, or else costs go up. It's about having efficiency. So having one strain as a as a business model is profitable. It's convenient, but it's very dangerous because a single pest can affect that strain as a disease and decimate a whole industry. Oh, oh yeah. Just like what's happening with the citrus. We talked about citrus greening on our yeah. first episode and that disease is killing the trees and we're having to plant new varieties and new, um, I would say, uh, grapefruit instead of it being a navel orange or a, or a midnight, we're producing something else, right? We're doing grapefruit or tangerine or a miniola or a lemon. We can't just replant the same, the same variety or guess what? That that bug is going to go right after it. Exactly. Exactly. So guess what? It was only a matter of time. And in the 1950s, the industry was decimated. But what can be described as one of the worst botanical epidemics in history. And this was the Panama disease. And it was a fungal disease that originated in Asia, which it co-evolved with bananas before spreading to all the plantations throughout Central America. 
And the banana roll one variety again. So remember, I told you, remember this variety, the Gros Michel, nicknamed the Big Mike or the English uh, translation, Big Mike. Uh, the cultivar was chosen, that particular cultivar, because it produced large, tasty fruit that could be cut from the tree and ripe, making it possible to transport. Uh, because again, it was highly perishable and it was exotic, uh, and it would take time, you know, to, to move to its final destination, but it could continue to ripen during that time. So each plant was a clone of roughly the same size and shape was produced from suckers, making it easy to mass produce. And it means that each banana plant was genetically almost identical, producing a reliably consistent fruit crop. And from a business point of view, it was a license to print money, but from an epidemiological point of view, it was an outbreak waiting to happen, which it obviously did in the 1950s. And the banana production system was weakly uh, founded on this limited genetic diversity, diversity of one variety, making it susceptible to this disease. So there was even actually a hit song, which we can probably post uh, after the fact here, I gotta about know. the banana shortage when the supply <laughs> began to shrink. And it was called, Yes, We Have No Bananas. What and I actually listened to it. It's a it's a great it's great. It, so so that was the uh what was this what was the title again? Yes, we have no bananas. Yes, we have no bananas. And we then no and bananas. then when you moved up to tech two thousand, Gwen Stefani was like, "It's bananas." B A. So there was bananas then. No bananas then. A lot of bananas now. Uh, that that is kind of amazing. And so what what happened before we get you know we're gonna fast forward a little bit though, John. I mean if we if we take the nineteen sixties. Um, the search began obviously for a provider to replace that gross Michael, right? So no. was there ever a, I would say a variety that moved past the, this Panama disease? What did we do as U S consumers? What did we do when there were no bananas? Were we up in arms that we didn't have our foil bananas with us now? Right. Were, were there protests in the streets saying we want bananas? Uh, well, obviously a little bit because they were <laughs> they were uh, saying we yes we we have no bananas. So what happened in the cultivation uh, between 1960 and 1990? Well, there was definitely fear when this happened. Oh yeah, uh, obviously from the from the United Fruit Company standpoint, and others in the industry, uh, but the consumers were also concerned too because again the the marketing behind this commodity has become so strong that people want the bananas. Um, so the search was on. They ended up finding one called the Cavendish, which showed sign uh, of resistance of this uh, disease. And it was actually named after the seventh Duke of Devonshire, William Cavendish, who grew the plant in his greenhouse in Chatsworth House. Uh, there's actually still a plant there today. And the banana could also be transported green like the Gros Michel, though it had a blander flavor than Gros Michel. And so this Cavendish is actually the variety that we're still eating today. And it's actually a less impressive banana versus the Gros Michel that was the original commercialized banana. And I actually had the privilege to taste the Gros Michel versus the Cavendish. And I have, to, I, I will say, and I will post this on LinkedIn too, definitely a better banana than the Gros Michel. We've definitely settled for less, Is unfortunately. It, we have. We've set, And, and we how have. much was that banana that you bought? <laughs> <laughs> so I, I bought a five pound of banana, which is probably like three bunches. Okay. Uh, I think I came in the box. It was $97. Okay, but was I did it for all of you because I had to know for myself what does it grow me? I literally tasted history for everybody here. Listen, it was good. It was John, good. John doesn't mind tasting a little bit of history, but no. my question to you is: Was the experience worth it? I think it was. Okay, I got I I got to 
I got to taste what our grandparents were eating when bananas were, yeah, you know, when they were they putting were foil. Exactly. Like yeah. when they were putting foil. Well, let's move to, yeah. to today uh, as we start to wrap it up, because think about it. I mean, now it's the 1990s. For most of you listening, you might remember the 90s. Okay. So it's United Fruit sells these bananas in America. Okay. Today. And now it gets a little different around the world under the brand name Chiquita. It's a Chiquita banana, right? And uh, where they adopted that name in, in 1990, right? 1994 to 96, uh, Chiquita informed farmers who are working in the Takamich uh, plantation, among others, that they must vacate their land. Chiquita claimed uh, that land was no longer fer uh, fertile and it was detonated for abandonment. This happens a lot in a lot of crops, depending on who their owners were. Heck, I just saw some abandoned grapes just a few weeks ago in California. So most of the families lived on this land since long before, obviously, the UFC had, had even entered Honduras. And understandably, they weren't going to leave very easily, okay? You try to kick someone off their own plantation or their own farm, it's not going to work. You can't just go pin the eviction notice up there. So the company obviously offered monetary compensation to the workers. They refused it. In 95, 400 police and soldiers arrested 36 plantation residents, injured a bunch of them with tear gas, rubber bullets, like everything they could do to pretty much harass these people that were living on the plantation. In 96, at the behest of the Honduran president and with the approval of the judiciary, 500 troops were sent to a plantation where they were met by 400 Chiquita workers. Sadly, 100 residents were driven out and those who didn't leave were arrested and the town was bulldozed, clearly showing the power of where they wanted this industry to be. And what that meant was you do what we tell you to do is the mentality that I'm seeing. So yeah. moving up to 2007, Chiquita admitted to paying $1.7 million to the United Self-Defense Forces of Colombia, the AUC, a far right uh, paramilitary group responsible for thousands of killings and some of the worst massacres in Colombia. Uh, it was designated the United States as a terrorist group at the time from the the, U, uh, the AUC. Chiquita was forced to pay $25 million, John, for violating counterterrorism laws. In particular, the AUC targeted labor leaders, liquidated pro uh, problematic employers, removed people from lands. It was absolutely crazy. Okay, everyone, with the historic priority of keeping the cost of bananas low, banana companies were willing to do whatever it took to keep prices low, from stiffing labor movements, keeping wages low, and strong arming governments. The United Fruit Company did it then, and Chiquita brand does it now. There is so much behind the banana industry. And even our pals over at Equifruit, as they have a mission of paying farmers fairly, right? safe work environments and gender equality. We shouldn't be having to contemplate these things when we're thinking about the people that grow our food. Am I right, John? No, it's, it's, uh, there's no doubt. And that's why knowing your history is so important because I think a lot of people are obviously not by choice, but are just oblivious to this sort of history about why their bananas do cost 40 cents or 50 cents at a store today. If they knew, I think a lot of people today would choose that I don't want to pay that little for a banana. I'm willing to spend 10 cents, 20 cents, 30 cents, maybe even a dollar more to make sure that people are living at least at a level that they can thrive off of. That I agree with. That I 100% agree with. Well, what's for the future? What's next well, for the banana industry? <laughs> 
unfortunately, it's still a little dark. It's a little dark. Uh, there's something called the banana apocalypse that's uh, kind of in the in the talk these days. Um, so remember that <laughs> that Panama disease I was telling you about in 1950s? Well, we replaced one monoculture variety with another monoculture variety. And guess what? In the 1990s, a new strain of Panama disease known as TR4 emerged again in Asia, uh, which is now lethal to the Cavendish bananas. Uh, and this time, with a globalized economy where researchers, farmers, and other visitors of plantations can just fly around the world, it's spreading even more quickly. So since there is no cure, all that can be done right now is to quarantine the infected farms and enforce biosecurity measures and disinfect uh, boots and preventing the movement of plants between farms. So it's basically like uh, social distancing for bananas. Um, but there is work, you know, there's work around genetically modified, but that's, you know, there's, that's an easy fix, but we all know that there's issues, uh, and, uh, disagreements about eating genetically modified products. Right now, the best hope is to for a resistant banana for export to emerge in the next five to 10 years. That's kind of the timeline that they're giving before this really has an impact on the banana industry as we know it. So we have about five to 10 years to find out what's going to happen. You know, it's at the moment, the Cavendish bananas are grown on this monoculture, right? So we need what should really happen um, is we need to find more varieties of bananas. And the consumer has to be educated about this diverse range of, of bananas. You know, there's more than a hundred variety of bananas out there. And maybe if we even eat fewer bananas and pay for more for them, uh, you'll get better bananas. You'll have more variety. You'll have more experience with these bananas. And so it's, but it's not just about the consumer with this, uh, with this risk of this banana apocalypse reveal, but Latin America greatly depends on bananas, not only as a food source, but as a primary economic resource, not by choice, mind you. Again, you know, United Fruit Company and the U.S. government from the late 1800s and early 1900s created this environment. They put them dependent, again, Banana Republic, on this crop. And so by not doing the due diligence to find a solution to this problem, the region of Latin America, which contains four of the top five producers of bananas for export market, will suffer deeply, not just those industries, but the people that work and live in those countries. So there's a lot at stake here. Um, you know, who knows what we're going to see from a banana? I mean, we can all know with pretty good certainty at this point, you know, the Cavendish is not going to be a banana that uh, our kids, when they're adults, are going to be eating. Uh, it's going to be a different variety, whether it's going to be yellow and the same shape as what we know the Cavendish should be. Who knows? Uh, it could be red. It could be, you know, there's actually blue bananas, uh, which I've been trying to get a hold of, but they're very, very rare and expensive. Um, but yeah, so there's uh, a lot of unknowns still in the banana industry in terms of the varietals and oh yeah of course there's a whole issue uh, like we've just been talking the bulk about with labor and business practices i think which is continuing to evolve i think there's more awareness coming out but there's still a lot of work to be done there as well yeah for sure and i think there's a lot of companies out there i mean regardless i mean uh, there's so many companies i mean the big ones you know the doles the damanis the chiquitas uh the fives you know uh, we don't we can't comment and say what they actually do we don't uh, we do know the companies, you know, like Fair Trade of America and Fair Trade International and Equifruit are working 
you know, to help with, you know, those working conditions because they we know it still happens. Um, we're not going to say that we know that the other companies do that, uh, but just based on some of the history and what we can, you could find, obviously there's been some lawsuits and a lot of things that are happening. So everyone, as we conclude this history lesson on bananas, it is important to know when you head into your local grocery store and pick up a fresh bunch of bananas, you are picking up a relic in time to enjoy for today. Now, it might not be the gross Michael or big Mike that your great, great grandfather or your grandfather was eating, but it is still a relic in time. That's our show today, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, John. See you next time. You've been listening to the Produce Industry Podcast with Patrick Kelly. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Anchor to get new, fresh weekly episodes. For more, please follow us on Instagram and Facebook at the Produce Industry Podcast. Until next time, see you in the fields or on the horizon.